Welcome to RUF. Glad y'all are here. And um, yeah, this is our last regular RUF. It's been a really fun semester and I really enjoyed getting to know all the new students and the students that um, have been involved for a while getting to know you more. And seriously, uh, we are a ministry for anyone and everyone. We say that regardless of where you are spiritually, uh, where you find yourself like on the spectrum of knowing Jesus, being known by Jesus or, you know, curious about Jesus, we want you to be involved. And our staff in particular is here for you. Our numbers are at the front of your bulletin. So if you just want to talk, if you have questions or if you just want to figure out how to get involved or um, just want to have a conversation, we would love to meet with you. Even we can kind of fit you in at the end of the semester. Who knows? But anyway, okay. Uh, so Abraham Maslow, I'm sure y'all learned about him in school at some point, but he was a psychologist in the mid 1900s. And he developed Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I don't know if y'all have heard of that before. But he was a psychologist that studied basically uh, what is most important and what is most essential to being human. And of course, he had these like lower needs, like you need food, you need water, these physiological needs. But there's also these other needs that were just inherent to being human. And he said every human being is asking and trying to seek the answers to these three questions. Am I safe? Do I belong? And do I matter? Am I safe? Do I belong? Do I matter? In other words, safety, identity, and purpose. That is what we are all longing for and seeking. And I think Maslow is right, not because he was just a psychologist. I think that's biblical. Because what we see in the Bible, the story of the Bible, is that in sin, we were, you know, since sin came into the world, we have all kind of been lost. We have been created to be safe with God. We've been created to kind of find our identity with him. We've been created to find our purpose in living in accordance to his rules, his laws. But in sin, we are lost. We're trying to figure out how do we answer these questions now? We don't know the answers to these questions. Paul last week said that we were born ignorant. And so uh, maybe another way to put this is that since we've been born with these needs, but we don't know the answers to these questions, that is that we feel homeless. We feel like we don't know who we are. We feel homesick looking for answers. And as we come to the close of the book of Acts, I, I should have had, uh, I should have said before, this passage was about Paul. It's who's kind of talking and uh, discussing with these people here in Rome. But as we close this passage, or as we close this whole series on the book of Acts, this is the last passage in the whole book of Acts. What we find is that the ministry of the apostle Paul really does reveal that Paul has found his home in Jesus. That all of these questions that he was born in sin, asking, seeking to answer, those have all been answered in Jesus, and he, he is living out of that security. So just two points tonight that I want us to see as we look at uh, what it looks like to make Jesus your home. Unhindered security in Christ and unhindered victory in Christ. I'm kind of getting that from the last uh, word of the passage, without hindrance. That's how the gospel went forward. So unhindered security in Christ. This is our first one. So there was a movie uh, named Late, or called Lady Bird, and uh, the main character of Lady Bird was this girl who grew up kind of in this home in California, and she was just really bought into this idea that her life would be complete. She could answer these core questions. Do I belong? Do I matter? Am I safe? What's my purpose? She could answer these core questions if she could just get out of the house. As soon as she went to college, as soon as she was kind of out of her parents' authority, she would kind of figure out who she is. She would know her place in this world. So when she leaves home, she changes her name to Ladybird. That's how she wants to be known in college. That's how she's trying to find herself. 
But by the end of the movie, what we see is that she calls her parents and she says to them this. She's found herself rootless, aimless, insecure, and she calls them and says, Hi, Mom and Dad. It's me, Christine. It's the name you gave me, and it's a good one. What Christine found out throughout the course of the movie was that her seeking these answers to all these questions, her identity, her security, her purpose, was actually not found in leaving the authority of her loving parents. It was found in resting in their authority. And I think that's just a small picture kind of an insufficient picture of what Paul has found in Jesus. That as he made Jesus his home, he was able to live out of the security, not by running from his authority, but by resting it. So if you followed Paul's story, he's recounted it many times in Acts. Maybe you all are reading along in the chapters we're not covering. But if you, found, if, you, if you followed along with Paul's story, what we find out is that every time Paul tells his story, he talks about how he was kind of in sin, he was rebelling. He was rebelling, he was running from God, he was running from home, and the result of his running was he lived a life that was defined by insecurity, uncertainty, and he was fragile. He lived off uh, really being fragile about the opinions of man. He was oppressing others so that he could feel a little bit better about himself. He was a bully. He was working himself to the bone, trying to gain enough righteousness to where he could feel like, okay, maybe I'm approved of, maybe I'm worth something. And like Christine... What Paul found was that home, as Jesus kind of approached him, what he found was that home was not found in kind of trying to be the answer, trying to be his own authority. It was found in running to Jesus. It was found in running to God. Or a better way to say it is he realized that home was found when God was running after him and resting in that reality. And by the end of the book of Acts, when we get to chapter 28, this is many, many years after his conversion in Acts chapter 9. And you just see a radically different version of Paul, where he was Saul in Acts chapter 9. You see Paul where he was insecure in Acts chapter 9. He's now secure. He's now rooted. He's now, regardless of the circumstances around, he's secure. He knows who he is. He knows where his life is headed. And I think the security that we see, the way we kind of know that Paul is in this condition, is his ability to face tremendous suffering without being bothered, with being content. That the circumstances of life, the persecution he received, the criticism he received, didn't shake his identity. He knew who he was. Uh, Just a summary. We've skipped all the way from Acts chapter 19 all the way to 28. It's a sizable portion of scripture that we skipped just to try to tie a bow on this series. And I just want to recount to you all of this kind of Acts chapter 19 to 28. It covers Paul's life. It covers the, the last portions of Paul's life. And I want to recount to you just exactly what Paul has been through, if you are are unaware. So after Paul leaves uh, Galatia, the region of Galatia in Acts chapter 19, that was his third missionary journey. He goes back to Jerusalem and he plans on going from Jerusalem because he had to drop off an offering that all these uh, churches in kind of Asia and and the, the Greek world donated to Jerusalem. After that, he plans to go to Rome. Because he wants the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. And Jesus tells him that he needs to go to Rome. But plans don't go as he thought. In Jerusalem, he's arrested. He's actually tried by the Jews. And they say they want to put him to death. The only reason he escapes death is because he appeals to them that he's a Roman citizen. And they have, the Jews actually had no right to kind of go over the authority of Romans. And so he appeals to Caesar. That's what he's talking about a little bit in this. And so he spends two years in a jail, in a jail cell in Caesarea. Uh, So his kind of reputation is growing and growing, and people are like, 
what, what is this dude up to? He's in jail. He's preaching the gospel. He keeps like telling everybody to submit to Jesus. Herod Agrippa, the leader in Caesarea, actually asks him to kind of tell Paul, like, what are you about? Or for Paul to tell him, what are you about? So he gets to share the gospel with the rulers uh, on account of his imprisonment. And then finally, after two years in jail, he gets on a boat and he's being shipped off to Rome to be tried by Caesar. And on the boat, they shipwreck. They land on an island, Malta, and they're there for a, a sizable amount of time. And on the island, he gets bit by a snake. That's like a demon snake. And he has to throw it off. Like Paul has been through it. Finally, after that, he gets to Rome. But he's in Rome, not as he thought, as somebody who's free to be able to speak the gospel. He's in Rome as a person who is in chains. He's a prisoner. But how do I know that he was content? How do I know that he wasn't resentful and bitter? Well, it's in this Roman prison that Paul actually wrote four of his epistles, his letters. One of them was Philippians. And I don't know if y'all have heard and maybe quoted, but Philippians 4.13, that famous verse that uh, generally everybody knows, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I think it's important for us to know the context of what Paul was, like, what Paul was going through when he was saying this. Paul was in prison. He was in chains. He had been years and years now oppressed, persecuted, rejected, defiled, wounded even. And now he's chained to another person who's guarding him and he doesn't have freedom just because he's talking about Jesus. That's the context of Philippians 4.13. He's not trying to win a football game. He's not thinking that his circumstances are gonna change. What he actually says in Philippians 4.13, starting in verse 11, he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I, I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every, in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret in facing plenty and in hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The reason Paul was able to endure suffering, the reason he was able to be rooted and rested and secure in who he was in Jesus was because he had found a home in Jesus that was able to transcend the circumstances around him. He had found his eternal Security, so that he could face these temporary trials. What does this mean for us? How do we apply this? So there's a psychiatrist uh, and Christian, Kurt Thompson, and he says in his book, Soul of Shame, I will recommend Soul of Shame to anybody and everybody. But he says the, the most memorable quote in Soul of Shame is this. It says, to be human is to be looking for somebody looking for you. To be human is to be looking for somebody looking for you. In other words, the desire to be seen known, loved, embraced, protected, desired is a result of our sin. And our existence out of that is that we are always trying to find who is looking for us. Why am I a different person around that friend group than my Christian friends? I want to be seen. I want to be accepted. I want to be known. Why am I working myself almost to uh, a crazy depression with my schoolwork? Because I want to be known for my accomplishments. I want to be seen. I want to be celebrated. Why can I not stop running to porn when I'm lonely and bored? Because I want that counterfeit intimacy. I want to be seen in whatever way I can find it. Why do I spend so much time in the mirror? Because being seen, being admired, being desired is what I want. Why is the suffering and sadness and persecution or trials of this world overwhelming me? Because it makes me feel small. It makes me feel unseen. It makes me feel like God has left me alone. But what we see in the gospel, what Paul has found, is that 
the one that he is looking for, looking for him, was Jesus. And after he found Jesus, after Jesus found him, in other words, that in his rebellion, in his sin, in his shame, in his failure, in his lostness, in his fear, that is what ultimately answered those core questions he's been asking. That was what ultimately changed the way he could approach life. No longer trying to look at other people to satisfy those needs. All he could do was now rejoice. Because Jesus had died for him, bridged that gap between him and God, because he had taken on death, taken on the sadness, because he reconciled us to himself, because he gave us his Holy Spirit to now help us live out of that reality. Paul can look at his conditions. We are invited to look at our conditions and say, look, my journey in life, my purpose in life, my purpose in this day is not to go and find somebody looking for me. It's not to make myself desirable. Make myself accomplished so that I'm celebrated. Make myself beautiful so that people look around, look at me. My purpose is to live out of this reality that the one that I'm looking for, looking for me has already found me. And I can rest in it. And I can be secure in that. And so the second question I have kind of leading into the second point is, okay, if a lot of our life, which is the argument, argument I'm making, if a lot of our life in sin is lived out of this insecurity that we're looking for someone looking for us, and Jesus has answered that question, then what do I do with my life now? If my life is not about making a name for myself, accomplishing things, you know, being seen as great, what do I do with my life now? This is my second point, unhindered victory in Christ. Unhindered victory in Christ. I think it's really interesting um, that Luke ends the book of Acts like this. Uh, the book of Acts was written after Paul had, had already been martyred. Paul was martyred um, in AD 64, most people believe, after Nero kind of started persecuting Christians in Rome. And I, like, personally, I would have loved the drama of some of that story. Supposedly, Paul, like, did he get to Spain? He was trying to go to Spain after Rome. He was freed as a prisoner. Um, he came back to Rome, and there was a lot of stuff going down in Rome as Nero took over. But the lasting image Luke on purpose gives us is this image. Because, honestly, I don't think he wants us to see Paul as the hero. He doesn't want Acts to be about Paul. He simply invites us to see the life Paul was living at the end of this, and he's inviting us into the story. He's inviting us to participate. He's inviting us to this life, too. What we see at the end of the story is what Paul is doing. He's a guy in chains sharing the gospel with people and welcoming anybody who would come to him. Welcoming anybody who would come to him. He's a guy who is working uh, so that he wouldn't burden anybody, so that all these people could come to him and not feel like he was using him, and so he could share the gospel with them faithfully. What Paul shows us, or what this, what this life shows us, I think, is what it looks like to live out of, the, out of the security of who Jesus is for you. In other words, Paul shows us exactly what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit and live the Christian life. And I think it's just defined by two things. It's being hospitable and faithful. Being hospitable and faithful. So what does it look like to be hospitable? Why should Christians be hospitable? What does it look like in our friendships? What does it look like in our communities? Um, Christians, I believe, are called to hospitality because we are the only ones enabled with the security to not have to judge, to not have to divide, to not have to draw lines. As a result of our identity that we have found in Jesus, we are enabled to be the most hospitable people in the world. 
We don't have to be concerned for our needs. We don't have to look for others to serve our needs. We are free from having to be served. Why? Because all of our needs are met in Jesus. And so we can give ourselves away. We can give ourselves away. And it's hard to overstate uh, just the impact that the early church had in hospitality. I mean, Rome was like pretty messed up. Uh, Rome was a harsh, harsh world. A lot of the Christian morality, like, hey, we should respect each other. We should love each other. Everybody's equal. Uh, a lot of that was born out of Christianity. People didn't treat each other like that before this type of morality came on the scene. In Rome, it was divided completely by race. And Christian community came in and was a cross-cultural community. There was no difference in Jew or Greek. In Rome, women were seen as subordinate and only as valuable as they were able to childbear. And what the church did is they welcomed women they gave them dignity. They gave them honor. They empowered them. Uh, this, the, the sexual ethic or the marriage ethic in Ephesians 5 about being a husband of one wife, that was crazy to them. Because women were seen as you can just use. In a world that saw children as either a nuisance or not to be valued or objects to use, the early church started making orphanages. They started protecting the, the rights of the unborn. In a world that was held up kind of on the backs of slavery, Paul said there is no difference between slave or free. We're all equal citizens in God's kingdom. This is the radical hospitality that the early church introduced to the world. The way we treat one another, the way we kind of long for this community to where, we, where kind of everybody can be involved. This even like secular impulse that like we're looking for a tolerant world. That was born out of Christianity, the early church, this radical idea that we are all equal. What was it? Why was the Christianity? Why was Christianity empowered to do this? What was so attractive about this community? So in the early 1900s, this guy named G.K. Chesterton was an English thinker, uh, Christian, and he oftentimes wrote for a lot of newspapers. And some of y'all probably even heard this quote because it's, it's gold. But one time he was uh, writing an opinion column because somebody had written in to the newspaper and said, GK, what's wrong with the world? And his response was two words. He said, I am. I am. That's the Christian response. And why do we like that response so much? What do we love about that response? What we love about that response is that someone was finally honest to not point the finger away from themselves, but to themselves. Someone was finally able to admit, I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm vulnerable, and let's stop playing the game. I'm the one that's the problem. This was before Taylor Swift came on the scene. But the reason that Christianity was able to provide such a hospitable community, a beautiful community, was that to be a member of the Christian community, it had nothing to do with your gifts. It had nothing to do with your strengths. It had nothing to do with your race. It had nothing to do with your gender. It had nothing to do with your power. What, what qualifies a Christian for membership in the community is your need. It's your need. It's that you need rescue. You're running from God. You're addicted to sin. You're unable to save yourselves. Christians are able to say, look, we might, have not, we might not have the same gifts. We might not have the same income. We might not have the same pedigree. We might not be the same Greek house. We might not have the same major. We might not have any common interests. But you know what? To be human is to unite around one thing. We all have something in common. We're needy. We're broken. 
We're people that are lost. We're looking for a home. Here's a way to put it. Uh, Christian community is more like an emergency room than a country club. A country club, your pedigree gets you in, doesn't it? You have to know the right people. You have to have the income that allows you to get in. You have to uh, have the accomplishments, the jobs, the kind of status in society. Which is why country clubs, however great they are, and if you invite me to play golf at your country club, I will totally accept the invite. But they're known for their lack of diversity. They're known for their exclusivity. But if you go to the ER, which I have been, unfortunately, um, well, not unfortunately, my wife was having a baby, but (laughs) have been to the ER in Oxford. It's still a scary thing. She's in pain. Um, If you go to the ER in Oxford, like the ER in Oxford is the most diverse place you can find. The ER in any community is the most diverse place, but it's also the most generous place. People are asking, like, what do you need? People are like, no, you go in front of me because, like, you're in trouble or you're having a baby. Like, people genuinely care about each other. Why? Because what unites people in an ER is their need for a doctor. All the other things, all the other qualifications, all the other gifts, all the other statuses, they go away. So the question I guess I have for you as we, like, think about community what it looks like to be hospitable and how if you have the Holy Spirit, you are kind of learning this hospitality is what communities do you find yourself in? What communities are you drawing life from? Like when you think about who you are, your identity, what communities do you love to say that you're a part of? The reason at RUF why we say that Christian community is so important is because communities shape our idea of what is right, what is wrong, where truth is found. And what Christian community, Christian community is not just important because we need like Christian friends and need to be able to talk. Christian community is important because what unites Christians, it points us always back to truth. Christian community tells us the truth about ourselves. It says, look, we are needy, we are broken. We are not the sum total of our accomplishments. We are the sum total of what Jesus has made us. Christian community tells us the truth about others that look, we are on an even playing field. As much as that other community I'm involved in loves to pride themselves that they are different than those people, Christian community says there's no place for that here. And we need to be reminded of that. But it also tells us the truth about God. That by the person and the work of Jesus, we have all been welcomed. That sinners are now called children. And that we can rest in them. And I want you all to understand, too, as we kind of look at how Paul was faithful. He was hospitable and faithful which we'll we'll cover briefly. Um, I want you all to understand too that like being hospitable is different than being tolerant. I've got to make a distinction because in no way am I saying that Christian community is just, just tolerant. To be tolerant is just to accept everybody as they are and never call them to change, never call them to grow, never like call them to repentance. But Christian hospitality is yes, accept you as you are, but we're always going to invite you to go see the doctor because The reason you're here is because you're needy, just like us. And what our community revolves around is the doctor and our need of him. And so um, Christian community is not tolerant. It is hospitable. And so um, with Paul, what you see is that as people were drawing to him, which he was stationary, like people were just coming to him. And apparently something about Paul was that approachable that people wanted to know and wanted to be wanted to know him. But as they came to him, he was like unabashedly faithful. He would tell them, you need to see the doctor. You need to repent. You're a sinner. 
You need to be saved. You need to run to Jesus. Jesus is the center of our universe. He is the king of creation. And life is found in submitting to him. And judgment is found in rejecting him. And this really is what it looks like to be in community with other people. That our life, our mission, our purpose in this world is, one, to be loving, hospitable, caring, compassionate people. But our love and compassion and care also extends to our, our desire to tell them about Jesus, to show them that this is where life is found. And we leave that part out, we're kind of missing the whole thing. We're missing the reason why we were hospitable in the first place. They won't get it. And uh, I'll, I'll kind of close with this. Because, like, what does it look like to live this life? What does it look like to live as a Christian? I feel like as I'm reading the book of Acts, and y'all have been following along if you've been coming, like there are just some crazy stories where God was at work in like radical ways. Even Paul's story himself, where this radical conversion. And I think part of, I think part of the struggle of being a Christian and living the Christian life, like radical hospitality and faithfulness at Ole Miss, is like there's this kind of, there's this kind of uh, idea that like, but whatever, like nothing's gonna happen. You know, people don't change. This place won't change. We live with this idea like God was maybe at work then and like maybe he'll be at work in the future. Like I really do believe and I believe in redemption. I believe in heaven. But like what's the point of doing this now? Like my friend's not going to come to know Jesus. You know, my community's not going to change. And I want to challenge that idea because I think what the story, the story ending kind of open-ended, I think is the invitation to say like God is still at work. I want to share a story uh, that I read recently just about like because I think storytelling is how we remind ourselves that God is at work. In the summer, I read a book. Uh, this guy, Harrison, Harrison Scott Key, he's a native Mississippian. And he wrote a book that was honestly the most vulnerable and honest book I've ever read in my life. And if you're getting married or want to be married um, or, you know, whatever, like, or if you just, you know, want to learn about Jesus, read the book. It's incredible. And it's the story about how his wife, Lauren, had had a year, uh, like years long affair with their, their old neighbor named Chad. Um, and it's their story of, I don't even think that's his real name. I think he just named him Chad because everybody knows a guy that they hate named Chad. Um, if, you're, if your name is Chad, I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, that's Harrison's got key. That's not me. But anyway, um, okay. But it's a story about how like through this trial, through this suffering, through this like horrible event that one he found redemption and their marriage found redemption against all odds and it's a story about how god is still at work and i want i want to just read you because lauren wrote a chapter after all this and this is what she says it's a couple paragraphs and just like that he moved in she's talking about chad this has been our plan so why did i still feel the dread in the pit of my stomach Maybe it's that we would be gone, he would be gone for long hours, late at night, disappearing, or staying up late when I wanted to go to sleep, or not having a solid job, or asking for money, or talking to his ex-wife. But no, that wasn't the reason. It was the undeniable truth that I was running as fast as I could down a path of death and darkness at its end. I don't know how to explain what happened next, except to say that God's hand was on me. It was a supernatural experience. Harrison's grace and mercy to me, it was so shocking. Where before I only thought of Chad, now I was only consumed with the thought of that grace. 
It made me mad that I couldn't just walk away and have the life I thought I wanted. Why wouldn't Harrison just leave me or tell me to go? Why wouldn't he cut the final thread and let it be done? Why did he love me so much? It was so annoying. If you read the rest of the book, um, what you'll find out is that the reason that Harrison was able to love with that grace was not because Harrison was some amazing person. What the affair did was it exposed his own brokenness. And in the face of his own brokenness, what he found was that there was a home, there was a resting place, there was security in Jesus. And that he had been trying to be his own savior. And it's because he experienced the grace of Jesus, he was then able to show the grace to his, to his wife. And look, this isn't the story of every broken marriage. It doesn't need to be or have to be. But it's just a story that shows like God is still at work through our hospitality, through our faithfulness. God is still at work. That's what Luke is inviting us to in the book of Acts. This story is still going. The king is still on the move. And the invitation that we have tonight with this whole book of Acts kind of wrapping up is this could be your story. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us on Jesus. We pray that uh, for those who don't know you, uh, don't know that you are a God, you are a father who runs after his children. They're still captive to their own you know, insecurities, ideas of where life is found, or they simply just don't feel worthy of being found. We pray that they would come to know you, that they would see you as beautiful and believable, and that the gospel would be true to them and they would find security in you. For those of us who do know you, Father, uh, we only know you because we are very needy. And continue to show us by your spirit more and more of our need because that is what makes you more and more beautiful and believable to us. Continue to encourage us by your Holy Spirit that you're at work and help us be faithful and excited and curious about what you're doing in this world through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.